Hey, you're listening to The 100 Day Project Podcast. The 100 Day Project is a free global art movement. Every spring, thousands of people all around the world commit to 100 days of exploring their creativity and sharing their process online. Find out more at the100dayproject.org. Hey, and welcome to the 100 Day Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Jean Thompson, and our guest today is Virgie Tovar. Virgie is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She is the founder of Babe Camp. I love that name, by the way. A four-week <laughs> online course designed to help women who are ready to break up with diet culture. She started the hashtag campaign, Lose Hate, Not Wait, and in 2018 gave a TEDx talk on the origins of the campaign. She is a contributor for Forbes and pens a weekly column called Take the Cake on Ravishly.com. She also edited the anthology, anthology, listen to me, so serious, anthology, <laughs> hot Anthology and with um, an O. You know, it's a new thing. It's 2019. Um, hot and heavy fierce fat girls on life love and fashion and the feminist press published her manifesto you have the right to remain fat in 2018 her new book flawless radical body positivity for girls of color comes out in march 2020 she holds a master's degree in sexuality studies with a focus on the intersections of body size race and gender you are accomplished virgie Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so I, I've followed your work online for years. We're actually both here in the Bay Area. We've never met in person. But, you know, when somebody's like kind of like tangent, tangentially close to you, like I feel a little bit like not that I know you because obviously I just know what you share on the Internet. But it's nice to get to hear your voice and to get to connect. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. You know, I, we, we talked about this a little bit, I guess, over email, but I really see this parallel between your work and um, something that's like really important to the project, which is this kind of like this idea of taking up space or being visible. Uh, one of the hardest things for people is not just necessarily showing up and doing their work every day. It's like posting online every day. You know, will people want to see that every day? What if they don't like my work? Uh, what if it's like annoying to be doing this every single day? And like a big part of the project isn't just your work, but being open, taking up space, showing people who you are and what you do. And I feel like so much of your work is about that too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I think, you know, I'm a fat woman, right? And a big part of my work as a fat activist and a writer um, who, you know, writes and lectures and does all this stuff around this issue, um, around the issue of body size and, and just weight discrimination, all these kinds of things. One of the first things I ever did was have to kind of show up and be visible, right? And I think it's complicated because mm -hmm. as a fat woman, I'm kind of hyper visible already, right? Like people are already mm -hmm. kind of looking at me and observing me, especially in a place like San Francisco where I live, where my body type is not the norm. Um, like this is a very fitness oriented, very thin 
affluent city. And so I'm already kind of quite visible and I always have been. But I think when I became a fat activist, I decided to own that visibility and to kind of play Mm -hmm. with it and to make it part of my power and part of my fun practice, right? I mean, I think it's really hard for people to be visible for a lot of reasons. Like if you're a woman, um, you were socialized to be as small as possible. And in fact, my work Mm -hmm. um, is so connected to pushing back on that, right? Because my refusal to diet or try to control my weight is um, against the rules of gender that I've been taught. I was taught that I should do Mm -hmm. everything in my power to be thin. I should do everything in my power to be as small as possible in every way. And that's physically, that's spiritually, that's vocally, that's intellectually. Um, And so a lot of times when women are pushing for visibility, it's going against our gender socialization and the gender norms in our culture. And it's interesting because not only have we been taught these things, we've historically been taught that our body and our smallness, these are resources that we can trade to get like stability or thing resources that we've been traditionally denied on the basis of gender, like financial stability even. Um, and so, you know, mm-hmm. it goes against a deeper thing, not just your education, but also this historical sense that if you're not small, you have the potential of losing access to things that you need. And these are kind of ingrained in us, I think, Um, even though, right, like we've had a lot of legislative and social advances, it's still going against this, like, I don't know, something that's like almost in our like, yeah, in our ethos, right, as a culture. And so I think it's really hard, especially mm-hmm. um, for women. But any, but in general, right, for anybody, we live in a culture that's very focused on homogeneity. And you do not want to be the black sheep. You do not want to stand out. That's a really bad thing. But, you know, to give a little bit of context, even on my own childhood, like I was raised by kind of like strange gaudy people and I think that I I was kind of encouraged to stand out so I feel like I have a little bit of um of that like a little bit of that resistance was kind of built into my childhood like my parents thought it was so cute when I would like interrupt dinner to do like a 30 minute like Britney Spears concert or something um and I'm sure it was was, yeah (laughs) But it was just like that kind of behavior was highly encouraged. And so I think I had some early supporters, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm I'm realizing that I, I don't know the exact breakdown, but of the thousands and thousands of people who do the project all around the world, it definitely skews very much towards women. So like men participate. Mm. Absolutely. But a lot of the people who participate are women. And so to think about this like um, – you know, this hesitancy to share or to take up space being, you know, really kind of deeply ingrained culturally and otherwise, I think it adds like a a helpful context that it's not necessarily like a personal feeling that you don't feel great about, you know, showing your work all of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also there's a weird, um, gendered way in which women specifically are discouraged from, talking about their accomplishments. I mean, I had a situation Mm, um, professionally about a year ago where it was almost all men and me and the men were 
Like literally the men were given a platform to promote their products. Literally mm. one of the men, his entire body of work was essentially a pitch and no one had any <laughs> critique about him. And then I had like one line where I talked about what I do professionally that, that is like part of the monetization of my work. And mm -hmm. I got the feedback that it sounded sort of off putting. Um, <laughs> I was uh -huh. like, I was like the guy who went before me, that was a pitch. That wasn't was even a thing that thing he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just think it was like really funny. And it took another a friend of mine who's a woman to sort of speak up on my behalf and really mm -hmm. show the room that this was an unfair. So I think I want to say like there's disincentives coming from a lot of directions. So it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, that's so true. I was reading uh, the cuts doing this like money series right now. Mm. And one of the latest pieces that came out, and I've heard variations of this before, read variations of this, of this before, is that the problem isn't that women don't ask for money. It's that they don't get it and they're penalized for asking. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so like how, how, how do you get to be, it sounds like this is like kind of always been part of who you are and your family structure that it's like it's cool to express yourself and to be visible. How do you help other women do that? Who like maybe didn't grow up in a house where they could put on shows and be cheered on. And <laughs> that type of thing? Yeah. I mean, I want to contextualize that and say like my childhood, um, I come from an addiction framework. Like my family was hyper dysfunctional. And one of the reasons that I was encouraged to be so outgoing was because I was, um, what's called the hero child, like in, in addiction frameworks, in addictive families that are touched by addiction, each family member, there's sort of an archetypal role they play in order to maintain the dysfunction. And every family needs the stellar of dysfunctional family and alcoholic family needs the stellar person, the stellar kid who proves that the problem isn't as bad as people might think. And so I was that kid. And so I want to kind of really add nuance to that understanding, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. like necessarily this idyllic thing, even though I think it ultimately gave me, you know, confidence. I want to say that it's also been a stressful experience for me because that's how I cope mm -hmm. with everything. I cope with everything by overperforming and kind of showing up really hard and all these kinds of things. And I also come from an immigrant family where, you know, you have to be the best at everything. Otherwise you suck, you know? And so I think like, you know, it's both and, right? Like I think for people who are maybe a little bit mm -hmm. more introverted or who have been sort of taught to um, conserve more internal resources, I think there's, that's a real tool as well. And so I think it kind of starts for me from like a, a strength-based analysis. And this includes the stuff about you that you're not as wild about maybe, but like reframing it a little <laughs> bit, you know? So I think uh -huh. like you start with, you know, what, what nourishes me? What excites me? What are the things that I'm like, I'm a little bit intimidated by, but have the potential to nourish and excite me and sort of begin to do like a tiny, the tiniest thing. Like I'm somebody who loves to break down tasks and have deadlines and stuff. So for example, if I had something that was like 
really big and really scary, I might break down that concept into like five things or 10 things. And I would say, okay, what's the tiniest step in the process of getting to the top of the mountain? What's the very first step? And then I do that. And then I might set a deadline for the second thing. Um, maybe a month or two down the line, depending on how scary it is. But mm-hmm. um, that's how I like to, I like to Excel spreadsheet things a lot, like whether it's in my head or, or whatever, <laughs> but like breaking down tasks is a really big tool I use. That's good feedback for people doing the project too. Yeah. Like whatever the work is that you're doing, it doesn't just happen. It happens step by step. And each of those steps maybe has multiple steps within them. Yes. And you're a very creative person. So you're a writer. You have two books plus the anthology. Um, <laughs> and you have a <laughs> just just gonna just go with just it. Go with know? it, yeah. Um and the <laughs> weekly column. Um, where do you get a lot of your creative inspiration or do you have daily practices or if not daily, like consistent practices that uh help you find and express that voice? Yeah, I don't, I can't say that I necessarily have a daily practice. Um, I'm someone who gets a lot of uh, my inspiration from talking to other people. So I'm really social. I have a very busy social calendar and I find um, talking to others and really talking through the things that I'm thinking about in, you know, like big creative things or whatever I'm thinking about writing about, um, like talking about that with friends is actually fantastic. And then I'm just kind of observant, you know, like things happen all the time. Like for example, my column, I would say about 50% of what I end up writing about is whatever happened that week that kind of had the biggest impact on me. Or it might be, you know, like I've also found that um, having a consistent, like checking in on news items and things like that, seeing what's going on in the Mm -hmm. world can kind of have that effect. And then also the really major nature person. Um, I live really close to Golden Gate Park and the ocean. And so like, I'm always kind of hanging out in there and looking at weird creatures, um, <laughs> like trying to find strange snails and things. I don't know. But like, I just sort of uh, like, I love um, interacting with trees and animals and flowers and stuff. So that stuff really excites me. And then just like tried and true, you know, I really like an ice latte. It always seems to get me through, like push me (laughs) through into that genius level. Gives you you that little. um... Yes. And I will say there's this one practice that if you're a writer, I mean, that's my craft. And so that, I mean, this advice might be able to transcend that, but I can speak to writing Mm -hmm. specifically. Um, I often, I added about a year ago, I started adding a final edit, like an edit level to my writing. And I sort of, I took it from Mm -hmm. um, TV writers who do comedy. They have what's called a punch up meeting where they, um, all the writers will come up with their best stuff and then they'll get in the room and then they'll just talk about it and they'll take whatever joke or material to the next level. And so I just Mm -hmm. do one final punch up round on all my writing and I highly recommend that. So it's like you start with kind of the dump, right? Like you write ever, like whatever you have in your brain, you just dump it out. And then you go in with like that sort of editor brain. And then you go in with the copy editor cleanup brain. And then I do a final punch up. Yeah. Punch it up. Yeah. Yeah. I am also a writer and like 
I often joke that I'm not a particularly good writer, but I'm a very good editor. Yes. <laughs> like, so that's so much of where, you know, where it actually happens, where it comes together. That, like, kind of whether you're writing or painting or knitting or dancing, like, that first kind of draft is usually pretty messy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you also do a lot of public speaking. You gave a TEDx talk. I loved your outfit in the TEDx talk. Oh, thank you. Did you? It had like a train. I was like, it, did. it has like, to yeah. have a cape. I don't know. I was like, was what is this? It's a cape. It's a I, train. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was a cape, but train works. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you said something in the talk that I thought was really beautiful that I would like to read if that's okay. Yes. Um, I know some people don't really like having their words read back to them. So just want to just always like to get people's permission before I do that. Thanks. Um, you said my entire body would undulate like the water in the bathtub. I should give some context here. You're talking about as a very small kid coming home and taking all your clothes off and jiggling. Yes. Um, which sounds great. So you said my entire body would undulate like the water in the bathtub or like at the community pool that I loved so much in the summer. My body was like that water, a source of relief and fun, a place I could jump into and feel. It felt good. Oh, it felt so good. And, you know, I I love that for so many reasons, but I think a lot of people have a kind of similar relationship with their creativity. Like maybe they did something as a kid and they had a little fun and, you know, kids are just like making believe all the time. They're drawing all the time like exploring and expressing all the time. And then I don't know, maybe somebody says like, you're not that great of a singer or like, who do you think you are to take up space effectively? And, you know, sometimes there's like a level of shame around that, but like the creativity is something that is so innate to us and it can feel good. And one of the things that happens with the project is, you know, a hundred days, like inevitably doing the same thing every day or a version of the same thing can feel like a chore Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe people aren't responding the way that we want it to, but like, how do you approach any kind of practice with like the goal or intention that it could feel good and that feeling good is a great way to feel? Yes. I mean, I actually like, you know, returning to the idea of inspiration and children, I actually observe children a lot, um, because they model like kind of this genuine, I don't know, this entire, like, they're so connected. There's no self-consciousness in their behavior. So one of the things I love is like um, the way that when a baby is really happy, like their whole body moves, like their feet move and their hands move, (laughs) Uh right? Because it's like this full body experience of liking something. And so I think there's something to be said about like, taking a minute when you're at the coffee shop to like watch the kid for watch the kids who come in for, you know, a minute or something like that. And just kind of see, you know, like what that, what feelings that inspires and things like that, especially for me as someone who works around, um, like releasing body shame and um, because we're just taught to have so much self-consciousness around our bodies, especially if you're a bigger person. And so like, how do we return to those behaviors that were so unselfconscious and, you know, create space for that? I actually find um, one of the first things, and I think this is useful for creatives of all kinds, but to return to jiggling, um, <laughs> I actually pres- I prescribe <laughs> like, 
60 full seconds of jiggling for people who are really new to feeling comfortable in their bodies. So they just set a timer and they just do it. Right. And I think it's useful to have um, like a 60 to 90 minute, especially rather 60 to 90 second minute to minute and a half practice Mm -hmm. maybe even like whenever you're working right if it's five days a week if it's seven days a week if it's just one day a week whatever it is but like having that like a little practice that's based in self-expression and fun that's non-judgmental and that you can put a little timer around and like I, I actually recommend jiggling even for like you know like writing or any other creative project because it's weird it actually does something to like yourself I don't know how to explain it like it it kind of unmoors or like it unearths something deep inside of us like it's like shaking up a little bottle you know and I feel like it releases a lot of fun um, fun energy and stuff that's kind of like because we don't move our bodies that way as as adults we just don't well, like, yeah, I mean, on like a like, like a physical level, like it gets all the fluid in your joints moving. Mm. But I feel like it's more than that, right? Yeah, it's just so like, it's like a dog shakes, right? Like, a, you know, like a dog doesn't hold on to its tension. It just like shakes its whole body. It just right. shakes it all out, you know? Yes. I guess more, more like animal primitive kind of. Yes. Yes. So, so shaking, what, what else? Like if somebody's, so I'm, I'm definitely thinking that's a great idea. Um, but, uh, if someone who's listening is feeling some shame around their work, what are some, some, some ways that they can start processing that or moving through that? Yeah. I mean, shame is such an interesting thing, right? Well, at least in the context of my work, I often talk about shame. Um, Shame is actually anger turned inward. And so I Mm. often encourage people to turn it outward, right? I'm like, so who taught you the shame that you feel? It might start with that. And you know, that that question is very big, right? Because the answer is often our culture, or that one boy in my class when I was five, mm-hmm. or it might be my parents, mm-hmm. or it might be my cousins, or it might be my partner, you know, it could be any number mm-hmm. of people. But shame is is really that that un hmm, that unignited anger, or whatever you might call it, right? Or, or it's inwardly facing. And so I often Mm -hmm. encourage people to figure out what the real target of that anger is because it's not you. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. right, like, and again, women in particular are very afraid of anger. Women Mm -hmm. would rather live choking on their own shame for their whole lives than, than actually be angry because we've been taught that anger is this terrible, horrible thing that only like, awful people are ever angry. Um, and that successful people are always happy. (laughs) And I'm sort of like, Mm -hmm. no, anger is a human emotion. It is. If you do not allow someone to express anger, you do not allow them to be fully human. And so it starts with that emotional work to begin with. And then from there, I sort of see that, that question, it kind of becomes like the breadcrumb trail actually into the forest of like what is really going on inside of you? Um, I think what that's what's so amazing about creating 
creative work of any kind. It is deeply spiritual. It is deeply, um, you know, it's it's connect. It, it forces us to connect to the the most vulnerable parts of ourselves. And when we kind of face it, and we look at the at the face of that vulnerability, and we don't shy away from what it is, that is when we release our potential to create. I want to tell a quick story actually um, about shame and someone who went to one of my retreats. Like I did a, I did a weekend intensive and it's about like breaking up with diet culture and whatnot. And this person is a sculptor. She's an artist. And, you know, she came and we talked a lot about fat phobia. We talked a lot about food restriction, all these kinds of things. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, she left. And then a few months later, she wrote me and said, listen, I stopped dieting. I stopped feeling ashamed. I began the work of letting go of the shame around my body. And I started creating the best work of my life. This was the work that I could not create before. Um, And so I think it's like really looking at you know, following that line of inquiry, what am I afraid of? What stops me from doing this? And then who am I really angry at? And letting yourself have those feelings is like a big part of the creative process. I got like a total jolt through my whole body when you were uh, telling about her email that she was making the best work. Yes. She gave that up uh, when she gave up diet culture. Yeah. Yeah. That really resonates. And I think you know, how much of our time and energy do we spend thinking about that culturally? Mm. Like when we could be just living and making and creating. And um, so that really hits home for me personally. Yes. And I mean, I think like it's that, right, like we're kind of taught to control. And this is what's wild and interesting about creatives, right? Our culture, and again, I think especially for women, our culture teaches us to control and restrain the most human parts of ourselves, right? Like our relationship to food, our relationship to sex, our relationship to our body. These are the instincts that you have to be in touch with in order to be the best creative you can be. And so I think it's important to recognize, right? Like, and have a moment that you're like standing in the, the, you're standing in the face of an enormous wave and you are facing it down. There's something really powerful about that. Even if you like feel paralyzed by fear in the moment, you're already in the process of, of looking at it, of engaging mm-hmm. with it, you know? Mm-hmm. There was, um, do you follow Amanda Mole at all? She writes for the Atlantic now, but she used to write for, um, oh my God, I'm totally spacing. Um, but she wrote this great article several months ago that I, that I like refer back to, regularly about like why the body positivity movement is bullshit and like the gist of the argument is not that the people who are like practicing body positivity but that the kind of larger issue particularly as that becomes like really popular for people Mm. to say is that like telling people that they should feel better about themselves without questioning the people and the systems that made them Mm. feel that way in the first place is like the real Mm. issue right and I feel like that really like for me is connecting to what you say about shame is that it's not actually the feeling that we have about ourselves. It's the, it's the anger that we have about somebody, what somebody yes, else has said. Absolutely. Done. Yes. Yeah. It's a great article. I'll send it to you later. Thank you. Um, I, uh, so like I got very sick a couple years ago and, um, 
I had, I had cancer. And one of the things that people would say to me a lot was like, like, oh, you're going to lose so much weight. Right. Right. And <laughs> like, as if that was like a benefit, you oh, know? Right. And you know, I'm able to hear that kind of thing and like not take it that personally because I know it doesn't really have anything to do with me. But um, yeah, the idea that I, I like as a feminist, I feel really entitled to like take up space, mm. physical space and otherwise. Mm. Um, like I feel like actually that's pretty revolutionary to be a person who doesn't doesn't make themselves smaller. Yes. And that's something yeah. that I really appreciate about you and your work. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really troubling. I've heard so many people tell me that, um, people who have gone through really intense illnesses tell me that they never got so much uh, sort of social recognition, positive social recognition than when they were the illest they've ever been. And I think that really Mm -hmm. says something about how we feel about women in this culture. 100%. We only have a couple of minutes left. And in closing, I, I wanted to Talk again a little bit about something that you talked about in your TEDx talk. Mm. Um, when you're talking about like ultimately breaking up with diet culture and it was that I believe that life would begin later. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that if you can, because again, for the people who are listening, 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 Jesus, <laughs> yes. um, just making up words as I go. Um, I'm a writer. Did I mention that? Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I think a lot of people who are creative and we're all creative are, are waiting, right. To have the time or the money or the right tools or the whatever. And what did it give you to not wait for later? For me, like I was taught that once, um, like I, I would have to work very hard to be a thin person. Um, and once I was a thin person that my life would begin, And I think a lot of people can relate to that messaging. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, it was actually uh, meeting people like me who were unapologetically fat and living these extraordinary, rich, amazing lives. I'm actually a big proponent of like, I, I have a very clear Um, idea of kind of like what makes really meaningful change in people's lives. And it's not actually that Mm -hmm. difficult of a recipe, but like one of the biggest ingredients is actually community, even if it's like one other person, even if it's only on the internet, but like hanging out with someone who's worldview sort of aligns with yours, who like you can turn to, to get you know, like if you need us, if you're like having a moment of doubt who you can turn to and, and be like, is this what's happening? And for them to be like, yes, girl, it is what's happening. <laughs> you're not imagining it. Exactly. And someone who's like invested in you thriving in some kind of way, right? Like that for me, that was the thing that took the concept of not waiting from an idea to a practice, um, was seeing other people who were like me doing the thing. Like, and I mean, for me in that moment, it was like, I went to this conference and it was for fat people and I'd never been to a gathering of fat people before. Um, it outside of like weight loss stuff. And, um, and it was like a, it, it was like a pool party and they were all wearing amazing bathing suits and like, 
laughing and chatting and napping and putting on sunscreen and reading and and they just were doing it with absolutely no shame and I think it was just like just seeing that I'd never seen anything like that before and just seeing that made me you know have this extraordinary moment of conversion where it's like oh my god this is possible and so if you can um find someone who's doing the thing and who kind of you relate to, they can kind of be like the touchstone or the higher power or whatever that maybe you can reference in in the moments when you have like doubt, you know? Community is, I I think, everything. It's hugely life-changing for me to have found, yeah, those people who make you feel like you're okay. You're more than okay. You're great. Yes. So what's next for you? You have a book coming out? Yes, I have a book coming out in March 2020. It's a workbook called Flawless, um, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. I'm in the I'm almost done writing it. It is it has been like really powerful writing this book. So I think, I don't know, I recommend if you're into into the concept at all that you maybe take a look. Um, I'm also in the summer doing this thing called Camp Thunder Thighs. Um, (laughs) I'm really excited. It's a weekend retreat where we're going to like jiggle and eat s'mores and smash the patriarchy and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And those are like my big ones. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements in the upcoming year. But if you want to learn more about that, you can go to my website, virgitovar.com. I will definitely share all of the links. Thank you. In closing, closing for people who are doing the project or exploring their creativity, any words of encouragement? Jiggle? Yes. I mean, jiggle, obviously. (laughs) Um, I just, I don't know. I think I want to say that, like, be completely unafraid in the pursuit of the strange and garish and odd and kind of like trust your instinct, like trust your gut. You know, I think like gut enhancing activities can be like one of the things I love telling people to do is like, you're actually accessing your gut all the time. Like if you take a second to listen Mm -hmm. to like, what's your favorite scent? What's your favorite drink? Why do you pick a latte over a cappuccino? Why are you choosing this beret instead of this one? (laughs) (laughs) And just kind of take a moment to be like, wow, that was my desire. And just like taking that second to notice, you actually make room for um, for that to show up more and more. And I think the last thing I'm going to say is, like I was just doing this collage. I was doing a vision board for spring. Um, and I always do a vision board before every season. And um, And I found this line that was like, you know, dreaming is the roadmap to building a future. Right. And like, I don't think we allow ourselves to imagine enough and like go wild with like all of the possibilities and to really recognize that like every time we have a wish or a desire or a dream, we are creating the path to that, to that place, you know? Yes, I do. I love that. I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. And, uh, I encourage anyone who's listening to allow themselves to dream and to explore and to dream about your art and to dream about your project. Uh, Virgie, that was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming to share. Uh, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so 
much for listening. I'm your host, Lindsay Jean Thompson. Podcast produced by Adam Day, music by Peter Fenn. Find out more at the100dayproject.org. Our guest next week is Zhang from the band Magic Giant. It's okay to like, it's almost better to make something poor and bad and then go from there. And we always say like, first write your worst song you've ever written and then go on and write your best song.